You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. One of the most valuable things about you, whether you know this or not, is your attention. What sights get before human eyes and what words and sounds get into human ears affect God's image bearers and transform the course of this life and this world. In previous generations, the largest companies in the United States and around the world sold oil and gasoline. Today, the largest companies in this country and around the world sell human attention. Facebook and Instagram want your attention to sell it to advertisers. And Google and YouTube want your attention to sell it. And Apple, the largest company of all, created the device that turned all of life into endless possibilities for capturing human attention through the pixelated billboards we carry around in our pockets to sell it to advertisers. And in one sense, this attention economy and the attention merchants are nothing new. Newspapers have been doing this. Television was doing it. Internet pop-up ads weren't especially effective, but then the smartphone transformed the internet and made online an amazing place for advertising and for gathering human attention and selling it. And when you first learn about this, it can feel violated. Like, I thought these were free services. I was on YouTube for free and Facebook for free and using Google for free. Well, they are free of your monetary investment but they cost you a lot more than money. You're paying with a precious commodity called your attention. Human attention is scarce, it's finite, and it's precious to these companies and should be precious to us as well. But more than just resisting these attention merchants, you may hear about it and think, ah, viva la resistance, let's let's resist the attention merchants. However, a more Christian thing to do is to ask the positive question. What will we do with our attention? If we just keep it from Facebook and Google and then pour it all into Netflix, that's not the way to do anything good with our attention. What are we going to do that's worthwhile with our attention? And the reason for us to consider that this morning is because the message of 1 Timothy is very relevant to what you do with your attention. Who has your attention. That's, that's the kind of question 1 Timothy 4 would prompt us to ask. To what or to whom are we devoting our time and energy and most importantly, our, our finite human attention? What sights do we let before our eyes? What words do we let into these holes in the side of our head called our ears? How much attention do we give to smartphone screens and television screens and to the big screen? And most importantly, to what end are we giving our attention to those things? This is not just about what you see. Perhaps just as pressing, if not more so, is what we hear. Because faith comes from hearing, Paul says in Romans ten seventeen. What voices that we allow habitually into our heads have a profound shaping power? 
And this passage this morning challenges us to think about how what's on our screens today and what's in our podcast feed right now are influencing the kind of person we're going to be tomorrow. And not just digitally, but interpersonally. Don't assume that digital is the only thing here. Real life relationships are still more powerful. Who's speaking into our lives? Who's speaking into our ears? And what effect is that having on us? Who has your attention? 1 Timothy 4, and its surprising relevance to our human attention, which is such a high commodity today, starts in verse 1. If you got 1 Timothy 4 open there, look at verse 1. How do some depart from the faith? Paul says here in verse 1, by devoting themselves. That's the key word. Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Another way to say devoting themselves is to say paying attention to. There is an attention problem, a devotion problem in the Ephesian church that Paul means to address and have Timothy address by what he does in gathering the people's attention. And this devotion or paying attention to is the same thing we saw weeks ago back in chapter 1 verse 4. If you're there, you can flip back to chapter 1 verse 4. Paul wanted Timothy to charge certain persons not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies and speculations. And that's the same word that comes back in our passage this morning in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself. Pay attention to. Do not give your attention to false teaching and empty myths and speculations. Rather, invest your attention in what's true and what's solid in what's anchored in God's word. Verse 16 then, go to verse 16. That is the summary and culmination of our whole passage here this morning. That's going to be our jumping off point here for the sermon. Look at verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Another way of saying keep a close watch is to translate that as fix your attention on. In fact, Paul said something strikingly similar to the elders of Ephesus, the same city and same church, in Acts 20, 28. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So paying attention to yourself and the teaching or paying attention to yourself and to the flock. Same structure here. So here's what we're getting our outline for this morning. Right out of verse 16. Number one, first, pay attention to yourself. Second, pay attention to the teaching. And then third tackles the why question. Salvation is at stake. Just a quick note here before we start into the outline. Uh, This passage is especially for pastors and teachers. So the eight of us pastor teachers here, And many aspiring pastor teachers among us are listening in with an especially attentive ear this morning. That's good. However, Paul did not write this just for Timothy, but for the whole church to read over his shoulder. Timothy's supposed to read this letter to the whole church. The whole church needs to know what's expected of Timothy, and Timothy needs to know that they know it. And pastors 
are first and foremost sheep. So what Paul says to Timothy is not irrelevant to the whole flock. The devotion that is expected of Christian teachers and pastors is not fundamentally different than the devotion expected of all Christians. The whole flock needs to pay attention and fix their attention on God and his voice and on healthy teaching from his word. The gulf between pastors and non-pastors is not great in the Christian church. In fact, there is no gulf. Every Christian has something to learn in this passage. And so let's have verse 16 be our guide as we look through these three points on verses 11 to 16. So number one, pay attention to yourself. And the focus here is on verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. Pay attention to yourself. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So one aspect of Timothy paying attention to himself or his personal devotion has unavoidably to do with his age. And very important here, this word youth does not refer to a child or to a teenager. Timothy was in his late 20s at the youngest, probably in his early or mid 30s. The term youth was used two millennia ago for 20-somethings and 30-somethings. And there are two sides here to Paul's charge in verse 12. The first side is clearly to Timothy. It's directly addressed to Timothy, the young leader. But then second, and implicitly, there is a charge for the whole church. Paul knows that Timothy will be reading this letter aloud to the church. It's for the church and not just for Timothy. Now, Timothy, as the leader... And as the young man in his 30s should do his part, Paul says, to rise above the low standards of his peers and the low expectations, perhaps, of the older generation. Now, we all know this. There can be a tendency in some older adults to despise youth. I think the road diverges. As you age, your heart softens or hardens. For youth. Perhaps this older generation, they've seen youthful arrogance. They've seen youthful zeal that's not according to knowledge. They've seen youthful impatience. They've seen youthful folly. Some of it may be founded, and perhaps most of it is simply hard heartedness and pride. And in most churches, this would be a place to pause the sermon. And address the older generation and say, come on, older generation. Let's give our younger younger adults the benefit of the doubt. Let's not be suspicious and skeptical and condemning of youth. Remember what it was like for you when you were in your 20s and 30s? But we don't do that at this church because this is a very young church. And we don't have older adults here that I'm aware of that don't like young people. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have a soft heart toward youth. And we thank God for you. It's been one of our biggest and most consistent prayers in four plus years of this church that God would give us some older saints 
with wisdom, who would have soft hearts, patient hearts toward all our youthful folly and zeal. Thank God for you. And so at this point, we don't have hard-hearted older people that I'm aware of at City's Church, at least not yet. We'll see what happens to our younger generation as we age. Will we be like the examples that we have among us of older saints? Will we hope for the best in young adults and give benefit of the doubt to younger adults? Those who are youth now, start on that trajectory now. Don't wait to readjust your perspective in your 50s or 60s. Let's lean in. Let's give benefit of the doubt. Let's hope for the best in our youth. And pray that God would give us more of the soft-hearted older adults that we have in this church. You are a gift to us. Thank you for being here. And may God increase your number. But mainly, the charge is for young Timothy. Timothy is addressed in his youth, not the aged addressed explicitly. And it doesn't just say to Timothy, don't be despised. But, he, but Paul goes further. He says, be an example. Don't just keep yourself from the folly of youth, but seek wisdom. Pursue maturity. Be exceptional. Be exemplary. Don't assume that you have to get old to get wisdom. That wisdom requires or comes automatically with age. It does not. Foolish youths become foolish older adults. You don't simply get wiser by getting older. Wise elders typically come from wise, mature youths. One of my favorite examples of this is Elihu. Maybe some of you remember the name Elihu in the story of Job. For 31 chapters, all we know is that Job and his three friends are dialoguing. And then we find out in chapter 32 that there is a youth, a young man in his 20s or 30s who's been watching the whole thing. And he finally steps forward and speaks. Having let the elders speak, he finally speaks in Job chapter 32. And here's what he says in verses 6 to 9. Let me read this to you. This is Job 32, 6 to 9. So important. He says, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. Then he says this. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. In other words, it is not the mere passage of time that gives wisdom, but it's the Spirit of God who gives wisdom. He's the one who makes older adults, younger adults, wise. So Timothy, in your youth, don't just avoid the follies of youth, but set an example for the whole church in both your outer life and your inner life. We just say outer and inner because that's that series of five words there at the end of the verse. In speech, now Timothy's a teacher. In speech is talking about his public speaking, his preaching and conduct. This is public life. And Paul says, in love, 
in faith, in purity, in his inner life. Pay attention to yourself. Don't get slack with your words and actions. Don't let your heart cool. Don't settle in with the world. Keep a close watch. Pay attention to yourself. But Paul calls Timothy in this passage to more than just personal vigilance about himself. He also says to pay attention to the flock. That's the language of Acts 20, verse 28. And to do that by fixing his attention, by giving his attention to teaching. This is point number two. Pay attention to the teaching. So pay attention to yourself, Timothy. Pay attention to the teaching. And this is verses 13 to 15. Look with me at verses 13 to 15. Until I come, Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So now Paul turns to Timothy's role as pastor and teacher in the city of Ephesus. And there are three particular questions, among others, I think we should ask of verses 13 to 15. So here now, under point number two, three questions to ask and answer about these verses. Number one, what are the these things in verse 15 that Timothy should practice and immerse himself in? We need to know what, that, what those are. What are the these things? Number two, what is this ancient ritual called the laying on of hands? What does that mean? And then third, what is the gift that Timothy received when the elders prophesied and laid their hands on him? What's the gift that he has? Those are my three questions. So first, what are the these things in verse 15 that Timothy should practice and immerse himself in? Now this phrase, these things, surprisingly, you wouldn't think that a phrase like these things would be a key phrase in a biblical letter. But these things is a key phrase in 1 Timothy. It appears seven times throughout the letter. Often, these things is a contrast between what Paul is saying to Timothy, between truth and healthy teaching, and on the other hand, what we might call those things which are being taught by the false teachers. There's often this contrast between these things, Timothy, these things, the truth, healthy teaching, and those things which are leading people astray. That's one way it happens. However, I think here in verse 13, there is a very particular referent for the these things of verse 15 back to verse 13, right? So these things is verse 15, and I think he's referring back to verse 13, to the threefold pastoral task of reading scripture, exhorting, and teaching. This, this is amazing that Paul gives a strategy like that. This is a strategy. There's a problem in Ephesus, and Paul is sharing his strategy. He's giving directions to what Timothy should do. Timothy, read them God's word. Exhort them based on God's word and teach them. Explain God's word. Explain the exhortation. Teach them God's word. And because Christians were people of the book like this, because we read the Bible and exhorted the congregation based on the Bible, and taught the Bible. We were known very early on as people of the book. And that's why in verse 16, the reference to the church, Paul calls them hearers. 
This is a synonym for the church, hearers, because God is speaking in his word and his people are hearers of God's word. And because of that, Paul wants to make sure that teaching and God's word are central in the life of the church. He calls Timothy to the word of God read and exhorted and taught. God chose to reveal himself to us in the words of his prophets and his apostles and preeminently in his son who is the word, capital W. And so what this means for Timothy as a pastor is that he must be a man of the word. Not just a man of the word personally and privately in feeding his own soul, but a man of the word in his public ministry. Don't let your strategies, don't let your public actions gravitate to other things, Timothy. Be a man of the word in your strategy, in your execution. Practice these things. Go to the Bible, read it, exhort, explain it, preach it. So Timothy should be devoted to God's word and to the teaching. And then Paul says this, it's amazing, uh, at the end of verse 15, that he do it in such a way that all may see your progress. The apostle Paul was not willing to suffer a lazy pastor. Paul's going to say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And in verse 11, what Paul says to Timothy is command and teach these things. And to these things in view in verse 11, I told you this, these things, an important phrase in 1 Timothy. These things in verse 11 is referring to what Timothy has just heard in verses 7 to 10. So Paul is saying, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Toil and strive. In other words, Timothy, work hard at the Christian faith, which is not just a word for Timothy. That's a relevant word for all of us. All of us who are reading this letter from Paul over Timothy's shoulder. Paul expects a kind of grace-empowered Christian work ethic that produces discernible progress over time that people can see. Which means that we do well to ask ourselves from time to time, am I working at the Christian faith? And how? Not working for, working at. Having been given full acceptance through Christ before God, am I working at the Christian faith, this gift I've been given, the power of the Holy Spirit in me? How am I training myself for godliness? Am I toiling and striving, the language of this passage, am I toiling and striving at the Christian faith? Or am I just showing up here on Sundays and just hobbling into community group and life group, life group on occasion? Or am I proactively seeking daily to hear God's voice in his word and to bend his ear in prayer and to avail these ears of the kind of conversation and fellowship that will bring me up spiritually and not down? Next then is the question about the laying on of hands. What is this laying on of hands? 
Uh, simply, it is an ancient Christian ritual that accompanies prayer and words of commendation informally and publicly commissioning a leader for the church. The practice in the early church was rooted in a couple different commissionings like this in the book of Numbers. There's two in Numbers, commissioning the priest, laying on of hands, commissioning Joshua as Moses' successor, laying on of hands. There's two more in Acts that are important, the laying on of hands of the seven in Acts 6, and then Paul laying on hands to commission elders in Acts 13. And then there's these two in 1 Timothy, which are most normative for the church. So we got two in Numbers, two in Acts, and now these two in 1 Timothy, one right here in this verse, and the other, which is perhaps more normative, because this is about an apostolic delegate, Timothy, is chapter 5, verse 22. Now, we're going to be to chapter 5, verse 22, in just a, three weeks, and I'm assigned that sermon. <laughs> so I'm planning to say more about the laying on of hands when we get to chapter 5, verse 22. But until then... Let me just summarize here the laying on of hands as a visible sign from formal leaders in the church that publicly marks the beginning of a formal ministry, in this case, when Timothy came into Paul's official service. The leaders who put their hands on a new minister or a new pastor or a new deacon or a new missionary are putting their seal of approval on him they will share in some sense in the fruitfulness or failures of the ministry to come. It's like the opposite of Pontius Pilate washing his hands. He washes his hand to say, I'm not responsible. The laying on of hands is saying, we're in with this guy. We put our hands on him. We're going to share in the fruitfulness and we're going to share in the failures. We're putting our seal of approval on him. We're commending this man to ministry. We're signaling fitness to bless others. They can trust us. It's like baptism. It's an outward act designed to make an otherwise invisible commission to be visible and be public and be memorable. So that's the laying on of hands. Now, finally, here under point number two, our last question is about the gift that Timothy received through prophecy when the elders laid their hands on him. What gift did Timothy receive? Let me just say, we don't know for sure what gift he received in that laying on of hands ceremony. However, given the immediate context and the whole thrust of 1 Timothy, I think we have some really good clues. It sure seems to me like the gift is teaching. The previous verse ends by the mention of teaching. And then the next thing Paul's going to say in verse 16 is to pay attention to yourself and the teaching. And the problem in Ephesus is unhealthy teaching. That's why Paul sent Timothy there as a teacher to give them healthy teaching. But whatever particular spiritual gift it is in verse 14, the main point of the passage, apart from the gift, is clearly the centrality of teaching in the Christian church, both in Timothy's calling and in what he's supposed to execute for the church to be healthy. Paul wants Timothy to work at his teaching. Don't neglect it. Don't choose other strategies that will take you away from teaching. 
Teaching should be toil and labor for Timothy. He should sweat emotionally in a healthy way over his teaching. Don't just get up and wing it. Plan ahead. Study hard. Prepare well. Stay up late. Work on it as a lifestyle. Be the message that you continually teach. And when Paul says in verse 11, command and teach these things, that's really significant to put command and teach together. Because that's the twin calling of pastoral ministry that we saw back in chapter 2, verse 12. There it was teach and have authority. Here it's command and teach or feed and oversee, teach and lead, command and teach. Pastors must do both. Pastors don't just command as overseers, but they teach as shepherds, as pastors. And they don't just teach as pastors, but they must command as overseers for the health of the church. And just as there is this implicit charge here not to look down on youth to the whole church, not just Timothy, I think there's an implicit charge here about the hearers for Timothy. If Timothy is to devote himself to teaching, then the church is to devote herself to receiving the teaching, hearing the teaching, filling her life, not just on Sunday mornings, but filling her life with the voice of God in the scriptures through patterns of life and habits of everyday life that would give us access to the voice of God. So pay attention to yourself, number one. Pay attention to the teaching. Secondly, and now the final one, this is, answers the why question. Why? Why this attention to self? Why this attention to the teaching? Number three, because salvation is at stake. Salvation is at stake. Look at verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And we said at the beginning that verse 16 summarizes the two main parts of this passage. The focus on Timothy himself and the focus on the teaching and on the church. And now Paul adds to Timothy persist in this. This personal vigilance and devotion, this pastoral vigilance and commitment, this paying attention to which Paul charges Timothy is not to be a flash in the pan. This is not a one-time event. Timothy must endure in the work, remain in the work, persist in the work. And then Paul gives him the reason why. Really significant. Look at the middle of verse 16. This passage has been one command after another, one piece of instruction after another. And now in verse 16, Paul gives us the why. Here's the reason beneath it all, the rationale beneath all this litany of imperatives he's given to Timothy and to the church. He gives the sobering reason underneath the practices he's commended. This is why Timothy should pay attention to his inner life and his outer life. And why Timothy should pay attention to the scriptures and work hard at teaching and think hard about it and sweat over it and stay up late if he has to and get ready. Here it is. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What does that mean that Timothy's teaching of God's word will save him and save his hearers? 
It's not that Timothy's speech or conduct will earn his approval from God or the church's approval from God. This letter has already been very clear as the scope of Paul's whole ministry has been clear about the grounds of our being saved. For one, chapter one, verse 15, the statement is trustworthy and worth deserving a full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus saved sinners. The initiative and action of God in the person and work of his son is the sole ground of our salvation. And faith in us is the sole instrument of that salvation coming to us. So what then is Timothy's part? Why this call for his vigilance personally and this vigilance in his teaching and teaching God's word and the church paying attention to God's word? Timothy's efforts under the sovereign plan and power of God is to serve and guard that faith and the faith of his hearers. Just as much as God ordains that Timothy and the church and us be, or be set apart to salvation, so he ordains that we keep watch on ourselves and on the teaching, what we hear, and the faith that it feeds, which alone justifies us before God. Teaching in the church is a matter of life and death because faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17. Not just one-time hearing, but ongoing hearing, which is why who we pay attention to really matters. Those who regularly have our eyes and regularly have our ears are doing something significant in shaping the way that we go and who we'll be tomorrow. They're leading us toward life or toward death. And so as we close, let me just ask one more time for all of us, who has our attention? Who has your devotion? What are you giving your attention to? You are devoted to something. You're hearing someone. What's on our screens? What's in the podcast feed? What's in our ear? Who gets our attention? And my plea with you this morning is that Jesus is worthy of your ear. Christian teaching, God's truth, the word of God culminating in Jesus himself is worthy of your attention. He will not disappoint you in this life or in the life to come. And so as we come here to the table, we gather our collective attention together again on Jesus as we do week in and week out. And the call to worship is a way of bringing our attention, our collective attention together our various elements in the liturgy require our attention in various forms and expressions. Then in particular, the reading of God's word and the teaching and preaching of God's word collect our attention together to listen. And then we turn our attention here to the table. And at this table, we remember a youth about the same age as Timothy, a very similar age to many of our members in his mid-30s 
who devoted himself utterly to his father. He gave no one any righteous reason to despise his youth. No one has ever perfectly paid attention or fixed their attention on what they should, like Jesus. And in our many failures to fix our attention on him and pay attention to him like we should, he remains faithful. He is not distracted. And his father's omnipotent attention is perfectly fixed on his beloved. And he invites us in this moment as his beloved to eat and drink with him. This is a meal mainly for the members of City's Church. But if you're with us this morning as a baptized Christian, you love Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, and your treasure, we invite you to eat with us. We will bring the bread around first. It's all gluten-free. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.